Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us and welcome to another episode of the GI Startup Podcast. I'm excited to share this because this is one of my favorite interviews. The conversation was so good that it lasted over an hour and a half. Therefore, we divided this episode into two parts. Um, just a heads up, I did have some technical difficulties in part one, and I hope it doesn't affect your experience. We have two special guests today. Alex Menes is our first guest. Alex got his bachelor's in biochemistry from King's College of London. He later got a PhD in MR physiology from University College of London, particularly studying MR interrography. Alex spent many years at University College of London performing high-quality research and received an honorary associate professorship as a result. In 2014, he founded Motilent, an image analysis company that uses computer vision to better understand digestive diseases, particularly in IBD. Our next guest is Dr. Eileen Sharbati. She is the assistant clinical director of the GI division at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the clinical director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Johns Hopkins Sibley Memorial Hospital. She did her residency at University St. Joseph in Lebanon and her internal medicine and GI fellowship at Georgetown University Hospital, where she later joined as GI faculty and established and led the IBD center over there for 13 years before joining Jones Hopkins School of Medicine faculty in January of 2019. Without further ado, let's start our conversation. All right, welcome Alex and Aline. Uh, today we're gonna talk about Motilent we have uh, Alex here, who is uh, founder and CEO of Motilent. Alex, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. And Aline, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Barra, for having me. It's a you know congratulation on starting this podcast series, and I'm excited to hear about uh, Alex's uh, uh, innovative technologies. All right, wonderful. Okay, so Alex, back to you. You know, it, before every interview um, that I do, I always record an introduction uh, for the guests that I have on, but I always like to hear them talk about themselves in their own words uh, and tell us about themselves in their own words, because I feel like there's a lot of insight there. So Alex, um, the man behind the voice, tell us about you. Who are you? What got you here? All right. So it's always interesting to give these origin stories in retrospect, because the story sounds far more coherent when you tell it retrospectively than it appears at the time of doing it. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a I did a biochemistry degree to begin with, and I've got a general interest in all things biology. I'm curious about the digestive tract, and I think biochemistry was an interesting place to kind of start off. I then did a couple of master's degrees around, um, you know, really cancer and, and you know, drug development in cancer, but that didn't quite scratch the itch, even though correct cancer is a huge problem. I think I never felt I could get close enough to the, the disease in the lab. And then I moved more into kind of the computational side of research. And I think this, this involved, um, you know, MRI imaging of the bowel. And I think this is really kind of where stuff got going. You know, I worked in um, a big lab in University College London called Centre for Medical Computing. And another lab called the Centre for Medical Imaging, which is the clinical side of this with people like Professor Stuart Taylor. And this is where there was a really big, strong interest in inflammatory bowel disease. And I was looking at these fantastic images. They got MRI of the bowel and you could see glorious you know, detail how the bowel worked. You could physiologically look at the peristaltic process. You could see a stomach expanding, you know, emptying its contents and the accommodation process at work. And I think it really got me hooked, I think, just being able to see these images. The wonderful thing about MRI and modern imaging technology is the ability to quantify what you're seeing as well. I think looking back, I wasn't there, but I'm told with barium fluoroscopy, you can really see, you know, physiologically how things are working. 
And, you know, a skilled thoracoscopist could move the patient around and distend bowel leaps and really see what was going on. But that was never quantitative. And he used quite a healthy dose of radiation, I think, when they were trying to perform these exams. And I think with MRI, you can return to this kind of more physiological view of the, the intestine, I think, and then begin to start quantifying it. And, um, you know, the last 10 years might have really been a pursuit around elevating our knowledge in this space, also inspired by developments in cardiology and other areas where, you know, I could see it's been done. We just have to kind of move it over and move it down the abdomen a bit. And it's really the pursuit of knowledge around this area that drives me. I've not particularly affected, for example, by Crohn's disease or IBS type symptoms. And I think my, my goal here is just really to kind of provide a set of tools to help unpack you know, this fantastically complex and interesting area of medicine. That's fantastic. That's a great origin story, as you mentioned. Um, you know, starting out in, in biochemistry and then moving through different disciplines and uh, ended up being inspired by the view of the gut on an MRI. That's that's fantastic. Um, Alex, tell us about Modilin. Okay, what, what technology are you guys building? Um, so Modilin very much began as kind of my consultancy during my PhD. I was developing technology and people wanted to kind of have access to that in research, but obviously it was in no fit state for anyone to kind of look at, let alone use. So I started trying to just help other um, academic centers initially here in the UK, but you know now globally, I think, get access to image processing technology for digestive disease. Uh, you know, I, I can't exactly say why, but Motilant then kind of got out of hand and we started winning grants and doing quite well. And I think there's real pull, as it were, certainly from the research side of the world to kind of apply these technologies to different disease areas, inflammatory bowel disease, and specifically Crohn's, and even more specifically small bowel Crohn's, and even more specifically still active small bowel Crohn's was like the real use case of this, you know, beginning with the MRI side of, um, of the disease. And um, Motilin's really evolved to kind of support the use of that technology, not just in research, but, you know, with you know, market clearance and C marketing FDA pushing that through into clinical practice to really actually get this technology fully translated and kind of on that kind of the path to adoption. And I say a path because it takes a bit of time. But Motilin, you know, if I could say what its its mission is currently, I mean, the mission is changing the way we see the gut. It's supposed to be a bit of a funny play on words. Um, I think we, we literally plan, want to change the way we see the gut through the different technologies that we use. So that's, at the moment, uh, medical imaging like MRI and ultrasound. But... You know, as we've really dialed in on the problem, I think our, mission, our objective for the next few years is right patient, right treatment, right time in inflammatory bowel disease. We have this you know, array of different options. You know, it must be incredibly frustrating, I think, for you guys in your positions as gastroenterologists. You've got all these different drugs, dietary, surgical, behavioral strategies to deal with these patients. But knowing what to give to who and when, I think, is really a limitation of the technologies that you have access to. You know, fecal cal might not be enough, or, you know, endoscopy might not be enough. And what I really want to do is make sure Motilin's got a full repertoire of tools that you can then pick up and start using to deliver this real precise way of managing initially IBD, but hopefully we'll move into gastroparesis and constipation and other areas as we get a better handle on, you know, what the gut is actually doing. That's really wonderful. And, you know, I think that you guys are, are focusing on something that is really needed because like Aline was mentioning right before we started recording is that it, sometimes it is very, very, very difficult in patients with inflammatory bowel disease to figure out where their symptoms are coming from. Is that truly inflammation or is it from stricturing? Is it from uh, consequences from surgery? That's a really, really good area um, to delve into. So uh, it, it's really going to be great to see uh, what you guys end up doing eventually and how, how this product end up, ends up being used. 
But I'm interested a little bit in the origin of how you guys started. So how, how did this come about? The, the notion of using MRI to quantify motility, whether in a small bowel or in a colon or in a stomach, I know that you've used all of these um, different areas to quantify motility, but how did this idea come about? Well, like with many people starting a PhD, I didn't have the first idea of what on earth was going on. People like to think they do, but you don't really. You just do what you're told. And obviously standing on the shoulders of giants, the radiology team at University College London noticed this 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 relationship between the bowel thickening and this absence of motility. And when I say motility, it's a dirty word. There's bowel motion and there is transit and they're different things that are lumped together into a term of motility. I'm not going to go into that unless we choose to. But there was this visual relationship between how well the bowel was peristalsing and that kind of bowel motion and how active the disease was. And I was basically told to go forth and try and quantify that if you could, because it might be quite you know, a useful biomarker beyond just the structural changes in the bowel. And remember, when you're referring patients to an MRI, I think in, in the States, and just, just for some background, Crohn's disease is a chronic inflammatory process in the bowel of, of you know, often kids and young people that will have for the rest of their lives. And MRI is seen as one of the staple tests because it can tell you where the disease is and what it's doing. Now, what it struggles with is telling you how active that, that disease is. Endoscopically, you can see the lumen and see that kind of change, you know, where you can get to it. But if the bowel's in the small intestine and it has extra luminal manifestations, like MRI's, you know, going to help you out there and it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty handy. But as I said, it's not exquisitely sensitive for actually looking at how active that disease is. Um, it was, you know, the, the feeling was that the actual how the bowel was moving, that might actually provide some meaningful and actionable information on the activity of the bowel. So very fibrotic disease is never going to start moving again. You know, if it's not occlusive, it's going to be sat there doing nothing for probably the rest of that person's life. It becomes inflamed and obstructive, then you need to go and chop it out. But if it's inflammatory and, you know, the studies that are taking place now are showing that within weeks, the peristalsis will pick back up in that very kind of early inflammatory type activity. And being able to quantify that means that, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to schedule a follow-up scan, you could start looking at to do that at about three months or six months even, like long before leaving it a full year for follow-up and again, that patient treatment kind of dialed right in. And I think that 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 relationship there was, we think motility is a good biomarker for disease activity, but we can't quantify it. And then I did the PhD in this and rolled the company out about bringing that, that number to market to really supplement the role of MRI in the clinic today. Alex, I think what you're saying is like, it, it, I'm sorry, Bharat, to interrupt. I feel like this is so, there's so many points here that is that are really interesting. Uh, first one is how somebody start um, you know, looking at a problem with a different set of eyes and a different approach, right? So there's definitely an unmet need in the field of small bowel Crohn's disease. It's a, small bowel is difficult to assess uh, for gastroenterologists. Uh, you know, it's difficult to reach by endoscopy. Uh, we have the video capsule technology, but often we're reluctant to use it in uh, patients where we're suspecting a stricture. Uh, patients who have obstructive symptoms, if we, if we don't see a short stricture on, on traditional imaging, uh, uh, people with Crohn's who've had surgery, we're often reluctant to use the video capsule. Um, intestinal ultrasound, as you know, is picking up and is a great tool to assess the small bowel. Unfortunately, at this point, is limited to specific centers and requires specific training uh, versus we, we have MRI that's available, I think, everywhere. And, uh, and interpreting images 
in a different ways. Uh, so going from the static image to really the functionality, I think that is um, uh, very innovative. And so I, I'm just thinking about Bara's question, like how did you start? You, you know, there is an unmet need. You and the radiology team noticed a specific pattern and you thought, okay, maybe what we're seeing could answer some of these questions. And by putting the data together and uh, diving uh, deeper into this, we can find some answers um, and, and look at things differently than we've looked at. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me is we often think as gastroenterologists, you know, inflammatory bowel disease is different than a motility disease, right? These are two separate words. Often specialists are, you know, completely disconnected, right? If I'm doing IBD, I'm not going to do functional uh, medicine or bowel syndrome, et cetera, and or motility, dysmotility disorders. And um, people interested and motility disorders are not going to be managing IBD. And here you're, you know, you're kind of telling us these words come together, right? So looking at the motility can be an indicator um, of active inflammation or, you know, fibrotic disease, like it can help us um, maybe figure things out. And I think that's, it's, it's interesting because um, it, it really brings back to the fact that, uh, you know, in medicine and GI in particular, as we're subspecializing in different areas, it's it's good, but we're maybe isolating ourselves and not looking at what other people are doing that could benefit our own field. So I think you're bringing kind of two fields that are traditionally separate together and, uh, and really realizing that... Um, um, you know, things are more connected than they want us to be. We want them to be. It's always easier to have a simplistic view, but this was really fantastic kind of, um, you know, these are the thoughts that came to my mind when you're talking about how this started, uh, you know, recognizing an unmet need, recognizing a pattern in some of the patient and digging deeper, finding answer in a different ways, but also realizing that, uh, you know, in terms of gastrointestinal diseases, things are not separate like we want them to be, and that one field can really impact the other. So um, I just want to put this out there. I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> well, it's interesting as well, because even when you get your patients into remission, like endoscopically, they look fine, radiologically, they look fine. A lot of them still you know, qualify under like Rome criteria for having like IBS. You know, they still have very functional GI problems. So I mean, whether you like it or not, it always ends up in the gut in some way, shape, or form. And I think these these IBD patients, they get the IBD label, but they're still putting up with hell symptomatically, even if we're, you, you know, you're, you're satisfied that the actual inflammatory disease is under control. So I don't think you can get away with it. And I think for many modern gastros, as soon as you kind of stamp out certain aspects of GI disease, your workload is only going to get bigger when it comes to that more functional element around the gut. I mean, you think things up here in the head, but you feel things everywhere else, like butterflies in your stomach, pain in the ass, gut feeling. You know, we manifest a lot of what we see in the world in our GI tracts. And I think, unfortunately for you guys, it's only going to get worse if, if that's the way you see these things. And I think tools to look at the function of the bowel is going to become, you know, increasingly hot when it comes to providing high quality service, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know, we're recognizing now that IBS is very common in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And... Um, honestly, the way I explain it to my patient is that your bowel has been beaten up by inflammation. So IBS is like a post-traumatic uh, bowel syndrome, in my opinion, where, you know, things have been inflamed, you know, there's been scarring, structural remodeling of the uh, wall. So, of course, then we're going to uh, have motility sensation uh, affected. 
uh, right? And if we believe the gut, my well, we do believe that the gut microbiome play a role also in all these things, the inflammation as well as the dysmotility and, and the visceral hypersensitivity, then, you know, knowing that there's a um, gut dysbiosis and IBD, um, you know, you can think that that might be also playing a role in dysmotility and uh, visceral hypersensitivity, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, my question to you and, and, and Bara, I'm sorry I'm taking over because I'm really feeling very excited about this. Go for it. Okay, all right. Because, you know, with, with all the technology that we have, honestly, you know, the small bowel is still like this mysterious organ, right? It's very hard to access it by endoscopy. Um, you know, we have small bowel endoscopy, double balloon endoscopy. We have different technology, but, you know, some of them are more invasive than others. And sometimes we still cannot, you know, understand what's going on in the small bowel. And I think that is, you know, as, you know, being part of the GI tract that we want to really uh, save for the patient, right? We want to make it as healthy as possible and avoid surgery, unnecessary surgery, and avoid more damage because, uh, you know, this mobile is key to our health. Um, let me ask you, Alice. So I'm going to ask you a few dilemmas that we run into. <laughs> I'm expecting an answer today to all my problems, okay? <laughs> all my small bowel problems. Let's, um, let's see what we yeah. can do. <laughs> so, so my first question to you, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, one of the dilemmas we have is when we're seeing disease or narrowing uh, of the small bowel lumen in patients with inflammatory bowel disease with Crohn's disease. You know, the main question is, it, is, it, is this fibrotic? Is it inflammatory? Recognizing the most stricture thickening are probably a combination of both. But really the question is, is this patient going to benefit from a change or more medical therapy or is this patient heading to surgery? And yes, we have different clinical markers and symptoms and, and, and things that we can rely on, but overall it's still a very hard problem. And I was wondering if we include the motility component, what you're studying, how, you know, the MRI is, is, is looking at the functionality of that bowel. Can this help us uh, you know, guide us um, if this, um, what we're seeing on static MRI image uh, uh, is is more of an inflammatory stricturing process and if it's actually the cause of the patient's symptoms, right? We could have a stricture that's completely asymptomatic. We know that. We've seen patients like this. And we can have a stricture that doesn't seem that significant in terms of how much lumen narrowing we're seeing, but that could be causing patient symptoms, whether it's abdominal pain, bloating, you know, consequences of bacterial overgrowth, or just like the blockage. So um, I know that's a lot of question and pressure, but I was hoping you can, you can tell us how MRI can change our life. Sure. So I think I'd like to point out that I believe that MRI has got loads of applications. I think its ability to give a structural view is unbelievably powerful, but putting a cardiologist hat on, if they looked at the heart in a purely structural way and tried to make assertions about its performance in a functional capacity, you'd think they were a maniac. And I think to go into the, a complex physiological problem like a stricture, and they're so much more complicated than I think we thought they were. I mean, Florian Reedon and the Star Consortium are discovering a whole bunch of stuff that is basically turning everything on its head. But a stricture is uniquely functional, I think. Not only is there the actual stricturing component of the bowel where it's thickened and, you know, blocking the pass, you know, the passage of content through. There's also that that, that pre-stricted dilatation um, that occurs where you see that kind of dilation of the bowel. And what's going on there is, is also fascinating. You'll see some patients with hyperactive dilatations that are really trying to push and grind food through. Some have completely given up the game and just sat there doing nothing. And there's a, you know, everything in between. So I think you've got two quite interesting areas. You've got the stricture and the region upstream. Now, to kind of 
you know, I'd just like to put that on the table first. And I think when you look at the physiology of the bowel, you can see all of that at work. And just visually, you don't need any fancy software. You can just look at it. And to see that that process happening, I think really, to me, should have a bigger part in how we're actually describing strictures, not just in terms of what's the thickness of the bowel at the dilation, going over arbitrary thresholds. I think that's very kind of crude and, and a bit backward. And it also raises interesting questions. For example, if you catch a hyperactive pre-stricture dilatation mid-contraction, you can massively underestimate the actual degree of the obstruction as well, because you're seeing it in a, a phase of the peristaltic cycle that uh, averages and biases your view. That's just fascinating. But going on to the, the fibrotic question, the biggest question I'm often asked is, can you tell if it's fibrotic? Um, the answer is no. And short of cutting that bowel out and having a good look under pathology lab, no one can tell you it's fibrotic. And you know, the sad truth of the matter is you don't get fibrosis and inflammation sitting on top of each other in two neat little layers. You get massive um, you know, integration of the two processes and an asymmetric pattern around the bowel. And one of the biggest smoking guns to me at the moment is muscular hypertrophy in and around that bowel. So it's the muscle itself that could be actually increasing the, the, the thickness of the bowel wall and leading to that, which you know raises a lot of questions for me in terms of antifibrotic drugs. Are we even treating the right problem there? You know, is the fibrosis actually the issue? Because you could have like quiescent fibrosis that leads to a risk of obstruction, but not actually a big deal. And you could have the actual muscle layer going wrong. And MRI, you know, fundamentally it just can't give you all those answers. You know, you can't categorically tell you've got fibrosis in the heart. You can't do it in the liver either. So what hope have we got with flapping bowel in the middle of the abdomen that's full of gas and content and goodness, what else? I think we, we're not there yet. But what we can do is we can track things over time. If you've got very inflammatory bowel and you put them on a powerful anti-inflammatory agent, that peristalsis will pop back really quickly and you can measure it. You can also look at the bowel wall thickness and volume. And all of these information go together to allow you to infer what's going on. Now, one of the, the other big issues I've got is with people developing tests for fibrosis, often they use surgical specimens to validate their tests. And I think if you've got a surgical specimen, it means they've, they've gone for surgery. So you've got huge spectrum bias introduced into that whole test. So there's, there's a really, you know, when it's really bad, everyone can tell you there's something wrong there. But it's in that very intermediate stage where things are starting to go wrong that it's, it's difficult. And we cannot and will not see that with a purely structural view. An ultrasound, CT or MR, none of these tests have got that degree of resolution that we need. So looking at physiological inferences might be a, a halfway house until we kind of get our technology in order. And I think it's something that's a bit more achievable in clinic right now, as opposed to, you know, off in 10 years time. Um, but even that might be too soon. So to answer your question, I think we, we can't say if it is or isn't fibrotic, but we can say this looks like it could be fibrotic based on the lack of response to treatments. And when it comes to stricturing bowel, I think when it comes to identifying that strictures there, MRI is the king of tests. I think in skilled hands, an ultrasound will do the job and CT can do the job. But having that really functional plus structural view, I think is probably one of the best ways to kind of stage and evaluate. And then of course, track that stricture a few times. And when you know where it is, as well, then you can keep on checking in every six months or 12 months or whatever um, sits, sits well with your, your payers. But um, I think knowing what's happening and tracking the numbers around it, I think, is key, rather than like letting, waiting for them to have a you know, proper episode and present with obstructive symptoms, which I think is often how these things are then reinvestigated. So, so as a bit of a monologue and a stream of consciousness, well, hopefully some of, the, 
some of what you're looking for can be teased out of that. And... Yeah, I like the analogy with cardiology. Like we need an ejection fraction right, right. through that structure, right? So, and maybe, you know, something that we can quantify to assess whether the structure is the cause of the patient's symptoms or there's something else going on. Um, you know, I think that that is, like you said, there are some like black and white, you know, zones, right? We know that this patient needs surgery. We know this patient is doing well, but most of the patients are somewhere in between where the history is more complex, right? Patients with small backgrounds that had already maybe surgery, uh, they have a component of IBS, uh, there's a stricture. Is that the stricture causing the symptom, or the or is it the adhesion, the IBS, etc.? So not you know not wanting to send the patient to surgery for a stricture that is not the cause of the symptom is, is key here, and and having a way to assess uh, is that stricture is 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 functionally disturbing the bowel and potentially the cause of the symptoms will be. Uh, fantastic. Um, you know, and it brings me back to another issue that we often have because you're comparing what we can see on static image and the functionality. You know, my understanding is that uh, even on MRI, there's a certain stricture length that can, you know, you have to have a certain stricture length of thickening to be detected on MRI. So something too short or, or you know, might be missed. And we do have sometimes patients where you're like, there must be a stricture there. You know, they're acting like they have these episodes of partial small bowel obstruction, but we don't see it on MRI. Do you think that by adding the motility component, you can say, you know, something must be going on there. I'm not seeing a stricture. But, you know, this, this motility pattern here um, tells me there must be something there. So, again, this is something that I cannot see how without a, a more physiological, that, that cine view of the bowel, you can be very sure of that purely on structural. I think with CT, you've maybe got one look at it. With MRI, what's used as a bit of a surrogate for that is your T2-weighted axial coronal diffusion. And you'll then go between those different sequences and you'll see can i see any evidence of this thing showing up but a collapsed bowel loop looks a lot like thickened bowel so if the bowel prep isn't on point you can really miss stuff and i think you you, you don't need a big length of disease that's easy to spot and quantify but as you say when you've got a very tight structure especially in some curve or somewhere down or difficult to kind of get to and the bowel prep isn't good and it could be actually quite peristaltically active you know, it can be moving between planes and you can easily miss stuff on just a purely structural view. And I think having a good 20 seconds of cinematic evidence that you can see is actually opening and closing. And of course, you'll, you will get, even if the bowel isn't prepped, you'll still see good peristalsis there. So you can be quite reassured that the thing's moving properly. But, it, you know, it's it just increases the chance of you making the right call and spotting something. Now, I tend to only work with the best of the best radiologists out there. And I think they could basically do this off a plane film kind of thing. But I think a lot of people, a lot of radiologists and clinicians don't have the time to dedicate to one modality and become super hyper experts in it. And, you know, if if I had my way, we wouldn't just have a small bowel MR that's used for everything. You'd ask for, can I have a small bowel stricture scan? And you just have different sequences that kind of really help bolster the certainty around looking for that phenomena. And it would be a lot more kind of gawping at city imaging to see, can you see all the bowel loops opening and closing properly? And I'd move much more towards that kind of way to really kind of be confidently be able to rule out evidence of a stricture. And I think there's nothing more frustrating, I suspect, for you guys than say, ah, can't see anything on radiology. You're like, well, we're not moving forward here. <laughs> you know, I'm still not satisfied because the patient doesn't look good or feel good to me. What you want is a hard, I can see no evidence of anything obstructing them. Then you can close the door on that, that avenue. But I'm not sure that this one size fits all MR protocol that we currently run globally, everyone does the same thing, 
is enough to rule out some of these more specific and nuanced questions in the context of IPD. And I think IPD is increasingly about nuance. I don't really, I don't think a, a, a trial should be run based on people with Crohn's. It should be, have they got small bowel Crohn's? And there should be an entire inclusion criteria built around perhaps radiological um, markers just for that type of Crohn's disease patient. And I think this stratifying the patients is really kind of what's quite exciting. And that, that goes all the way to the extent of what type of disease do they have and stricturing. For me, there should be a whole a whole bunch of work around just how do we do stricturing Crohn's really well. I agree. I'm going to hand it back to Barra because I can ask... <laughs> Questions forever. Barbara is more interested in the in in in, in like how, how how do you you know develop ideas, which I think is is fantastic. Um, so Barbara, I'm going to hand it back to you. <laughs> yeah, I think this is great. I was actually enjoying the discussion very much. That was a fantastic discussion. We actually touched upon a lot of the things that um, that I wanted to talk about. So that's really great. But I'm gonna go a little bit um, in a different direction, like uh, Aleem was saying, and I'm going to ask you a question, Alex. I've, I must have spoken to like 100 founders um, in the past few months. And every time I speak to someone who is um, working on building a company, I see a common thing amongst all of them, which is basically trying to say that their technology applies to everyone, not even patients, you know, everyone, everybody out there. Because you know, I feel like it, w- with technology, people are trying to say that our customer base is basically everyone. That usually helps, um, you know, getting investment. It usually helps with the PR for the company. Um, and at the same time, I mean, not to say that, you know, all their products don't really benefit everyone. Um, m- most of the time they could. But I think Motilint is very special in, in many different ways. Um, and, you know, one of them is the amount of research that you guys have already published. I mean, the, the, the amount of papers that were published uh, by uh, folks at Motilint is, is amazing. Uh, but at the same time, I think one of the things that make you guys special is the I- extreme focus. You guys are focused not only on IBD and not only on Crohn's disease, but also on small bowel Crohn's disease. And like you mentioned earlier, active small bowel Crohn's disease. Um, And it's really interesting to see that focus. And I was going to ask you, how come? Well, it's it's quite simple, really. I'm selling or trying to sell complex technology to very sophisticated people that are hugely skeptical and don't believe in miracles and rightly don't. if I go into one of your clinics and say, I've got a tool for Crohn's, you're just going to be, the first thing you're going to ask me is, well, no, you don't. And well, I haven't heard about it. And how's that working exactly? And I feel that I can just cut to the chase a lot more effectively by being very specific in my language around what we're doing. And people aren't interested in generic solutions. Like, I, And I, this is not me knocking anyone, but there's lots of companies out there that have like an, a symptom app for like tracking your symptoms and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's, it's, it's important and, you know, interesting and I think has value. But the question is going to be, why would I be paying for that with my patients? And like how, how, how do I kind of make that work to improve the patient outcomes? And I think this is very hard to show and very difficult. And I've discovered that by being hyper-focused on one specific problem within the kind of the, the world of GI, which for me, I can, I can spin 10 companies out of just this, the one that I've got at the moment around all things GI. But right now, I think, you know, stricturing Crohn's is one of them. And knowing is that drug that's costing 20 to 50,000 bucks a year with a 50% one year failure rate working in this patient group, like that is a profound question that needs answering. 
And if I can only answer that question, the pediatric and adolescent small bowel community, that's billions of dollars that we could potentially save globally a year. And that, that problem's well worth tackling in, in, a, very, in a very focused way. It, it affects directly and indirectly, and obviously you guys as clinicians can get your job right. But I think in terms of the accrual bowel damage that you can do to a young person on the wrong drugs for two years when, when they don't need to be there, it's got big socioeconomic impact that I feel quite passionate about fixing. And I feel like it's something we should easily be able to fix with what we have you know, to hand at the moment. Again, I always go back to the point, I'm very interested in stuff like dementia. We've got great testing there. Like we can characterize the ventricle change in the brain with MRI to the nth degree and it's wonderful. But until there's a powerful therapeutic to do something there, the impact just isn't going to be felt. We've got the inverse situation in gastroenterology, especially IPD. Every drug company has got multiple assets looking at doing twiddling some part of the inflammatory cascade in IBD. You've got so many options at your fingertips, but how you marry those and bring those together, you need to have the tools to do it. And all I need to do is basically get these tools into your hands and let you play with them and work with them a bit. And you're going to be off to the races in terms of really kind of like radically improving these kind of patient outcomes. And I think it's such a simple thing to try and do. I mean, there's a bit of nuance to it. But um, the other big part of that is developing that trust and confidence in the user base. Motilin will always do research and we're always going to plow a lot of effort into supporting people doing research. Because I think when you use the tech, you see it and you feel it and you know where it does and doesn't work. The FDA clearance, and we can have a big talk on the FDA in a bit if you want, but that doesn't really mean anything to you guys in clinical practice. You want to know, is my colleagues using it? Can I get access to it? What does the care guidelines say around it? And that comes through trust and clinical trials from time to time. But fecal calprotectin, it didn't come down from the mountain and be like, boom, there we are, fecal calprotectin for everyone. They're still fiddling around with the thresholds and what people and who. It's been on the market now for 20 plus years. It just has to kind of seep into the collective consciousness of the community. And I think this is what, you know, the research and, you know, the I've really been focusing on is like not rushing and like not, you know, really staying kind of fixed on one particular objective and giving the, the community the exposure through the research to kind of know how to use this and when, and just trusting that in time it'll like, it'll pick up and land properly. And I think that's, that's a difficult game to kind of balance. But again, I'd say it's very much built around kind of trust and specificity in the language and, and the problem that you're trying to solve. That is an amazing answer. And there's a lot to unpack, but I love the approach, and and I think um, Aline touched on this a little bit ago. That the GI tract is is a complex system. Unfortunately, we don't study it that way, uh, which is extremely frustrating. But it is a complex system. There are so many players, and small bowel Crohn's disease is one of the perfect examples for this. And like Aline was saying, you know, so many players. You have the gut microbiome. You have inflammation. You have structural changes through strictures and fibrosis and whatnot. Um, and then you have the effects of the diet. You have the um, effects of, I mean, you mentioned uh, bowel PTSD, but patients actually do have PTSD from uh, from their uh, Crohn's flares. And so th- that also adds the psychological aspect to things. And all of these things uh, play a role together. Um, and then if you come up with uh, an answer for all of these together, I think that uh, absolutely the trust in that answer will not be great. People will look at you and think, are you nuts? You're telling me if I take this probiotic, it's going to resolve all of my problem. It just doesn't work that way. So that focus 
I, I absolutely agree. It gives people a lot more um, trust in, in what you're saying. And at the same time, it, it, it makes your question easier to assess um, and your intervention easier to assess um, through studies. And that's, that's a really fantastic way to go about this. All right. So we touched a bit about how this can help uh, patients. And I, you mentioned that uh, this can help assess the response to treatment and longitudinally, it may be able to um, differentiate to a certain degree between fibrotic strictures as well as um, active strictures. Any other ways that you believe it could help patients with Crohn's disease? I think we got some slowdown. Can you hear me now? Farah, we're losing you. Internet, please, killing us. So you, are you involved in this whole MRI versus ultrasound debate that's kicking off at the moment? <laughs> no, I just like to watch and promote anybody bringing value. <laughs> I like poking at it a bit. It's, just, it's so like... You know, honestly, I, you know, I think the, you know, anytime there's a new technology, people who are doing something we're always doing freak out but the reality is it's all part of like it's like a toolbox mm. so i see it and just bringing things together it's like you know for example for colonoscopy for colon cancer screening when cologuard came out it's like oh you know it's going to take away colonoscopy well first of all i think um well the technology the cologuard technology is not there that's a different issue but you you're just it's another tool you know, for colon cancer screening. And there are people that are never going to do a colonoscopy or they are too frail to do colonoscopy. They're going to do that cologuard, you know, and then colonoscopy should honestly be more focused on people who are at high risk mm. so that it's intervention at the same time. So I think anytime there's a new technology, you know, people doing something that we've always been doing, freak out, that's going to take away from us, but it's not. Mm. It's just another uh, tool in our toolbox because at some point, like I think, you know, the way to really assess things is to put all this together. There's not going to be one test that's going to give you all right. the answers, right? right? So you have to have your clinical judgment, the patient history, um, you know, how those symptoms are happening, you know, really putting things in context. Because if you just say abdominal pain, it means nothing. I mean, that's the that's the way you figure out things, right? Mm. By asking like the granular and, and then putting, for example, the MRI finding together, the fecal and the prior imaging, you know, so I don't think there's a technology that's going to take away from one. I think it's just added. And it's also what's available. I mean, you know, not everything is available everywhere. Mm. So if you can work with something that's available and improve it, that's that's great. I mean, that's that's exactly what, you know, our, our strap plan is much more like orchestrating the care pathway yeah. and making sure that tech is right. there and available and as objective yeah. as it can be. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm loving the fact that ultrasound's been seen as a new thing in GI, like yeah. decades ago, there was like sonographers that do lists of patients with Crohn's because, yeah. you know, it's, it's as old as right. the hills, <laughs> you know, there's nothing new about it. Yeah, but. it's yeah, yeah, that's it. it but, but this is how medicine advances. It just doesn't advance quickly. It's more, you know, it's such a, I think of it as a, such a traditional institution for something to, you know, a new technology to be adopted. I mean, some things are adopted quickly for whatever reason, but other things just take time to uh have their time but we we lost you um, can you hear me again yeah 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 we can hear you and see you okay. all right yeah. so um coming back you touched upon alex how your technology can help at finding out a little bit earlier or sooner if the medication that you're using is actually helping the patients 
And at the same time, you also touched upon how on a long run, longitudinally, you can actually see if the bowel regains peristalsis and that can give you an indication whether this is a fibrotic stricture or an inflammatory uh, process. So are there any other ways that you foresee this technology helping patients with IBD? Um, so IBD is very much, you know, the first part. I think small bowel Crohn's is, is what we're talking about. But as 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 we evolve our technology, we we can't make a viable business doing such a tiny part of the care pathway, given the amount of time it's going to take to see this adopted. I do brand GIQUANT, the FDA clear tool for measuring this peristaltic process, as like fecal cal, but for the small intestine. Like that's what I want gastros to see it as. I want them to say, can you give me the GIQUANT score? I want to see if it's gone up or gone down. And that's that's how I'd like it to be used. But it's going to take a decade for that to kind of appear in guidelines if everything goes well and if all the tests are used. And it's, and it's only going to appear in those guidelines if specifically gastros say, I want this and I want to try it out and push radiologists to do it. You know what radiologists are like at saying no to things. And when it comes to completely new things like this kind of tech, there's a huge resistance because they don't know what it is. it cost effective? And I, I often ask clinicians, well, <laughs> what is cost effective most of the time? The amount of stuff that's reimbursed that's completely not cost effective is is unreal. So uh, you know, there's there's a lot of questions asked for that, but we're look, we're, we're a long way off uh, just you. I can't really making it big. So the, the question is, you know, really not just what do we do with motility because that's you know, that's interesting, but how do I start leveraging MRI more effectively? And the, the big areas around um, disease like perianal Crohn's. So a lot of the the patients with like perianal complications get these terrible fistula tracts that are very expensive and difficult to kind of heal up. So this has got nothing to do with motility in the world, but it's an area where our technology, we can switch into that very simply and we can start providing like surgical planning tools for looking at where you're going to go in as a surgeon and also measuring that, that fistula healing. These, these use all the MRI skills that we have, all the post-processing knowledge that we have, and it just adds another big piece of the kind of the Crohn's management picture um, to support this kind of this this wraparound solution for inflammatory bowel disease, and I think this is this is really where we're going to go. It's not going to be just finding more and more things to look at the motility of. It's going to be much more about how do we actually produce a real solution for the gastroenterologist via radiology. You know, we're going to radiologists. You you want that brain power backstopping the test and spotting for incidentals and actually using their knowledge around. It. We, we can't replace that ever, but we can help them give very objective, repeatable scores. That's going to then allow you to make better data-driven decisions. And who knows, some of you might even start taking radiology exams, I think, at some point. Um, and I think it's the other application of this, again, building more on the MRI rather than the, the motility technology, is if you have a high-quality MRI, you know where the disease is, what it's doing. Yes, it's in the small intestine, the patient's nice and slim. Then you can probably go in with your ultrasound probe and you don't have to worry about incidental findings and looking at all the other soft organs. You know what you need to go and find you can go and scan it. You can provide very high quality ultrasound follow-up data in your clinic. And I think can give that kind of patient the feedback they need and integrate it very much in the workflow. It's how we integrate those technologies that I'm, again, particularly interested in solving with the company, right down to can we actually give you the ultrasound probe yourselves and really dial that, that probe in just for looking at the GI tract. I want to put the technology together so you're never using the wrong thing in the wrong person. Like, don't go hunting around for pelvic disease in like a high BMI individual with query Crohn's disease with ultrasound, like as <laughs> in the best hands in the world, that's a really, really hard job. But similarly, if it's a child, 
they're slim and you know where the disease is, don't put them through bowel prep. Like, they don't need all that kind of stuff with MRE. Go with the ultrasound option, but it's using the right tool for the job. I think it's hard, just not from a training perspective, but also from an access and a cost perspective. And I think if the company can basically take what we've learned with our first product and apply it to this kind of more like holistic view of inflammatory bowel disease, I think just that that stuff should sell itself, he says, touch wood, because I think it's going to provide such a better, more satisfactory solution for you know the payers, the providers, the patients, you name it. I think everyone's going to prefer that. And I'm quite confident that as long as we're, we, we're, we hold true to ourselves and keep doing quality work and you know, don't rush it too much, I think that that's, that's going to be a sensible step forward for the field. I just hope that we get the engagement we want from the, the clinical community who are inherently risk averse around new stuff like this, and especially Brits coming over with waving their technology. I think that's, a, that's another matter there. Alex, I, I love how specific you are. I just It's just so refreshing. Everything you say is very, very specific. <laughs> you, you describe very specific problems and very specific solutions. Even the analogy that you use, you want this to be like fecal cap protecting for the small bowel. Very specific. I, I commend you. That's amazing. As long as we hold true to ourselves and keep doing quality work and don't rush it too much, I think that that would be a sensible step forward for the field. On that note, we'll end part one of this amazing conversation. Please tune in next week for part two. If you have any questions or suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on any of my social media accounts. And please don't forget to rate us and leave a review. It'll really help us out in creating additional content. Until next time.